What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Each one of us goes through storms in life. We encounter difficulties. We encounter hardships. We have storms where we lose loved ones, storms where we're told we have a a life-threatening disease, storms where uh, we we lose our job. We don't know how we're going to pay our bills, how we're going to take care of our family, Uh, storms where marriages are struggling, where where kids are rebelling, storms where the enemy is just attacking us and, and making our life difficult. And I'm pretty confident that none of us likes to go through those types of storms. None of us like difficulties. None of us like those hardships. And um, because we don't like going through those things, we don't like going through storms in our life, a common question that we often pose as as Christians is, why does God allow storms in my life? I'm sure that you have posed that question. I know that I have, and, and we wonder that, especially when we're in the midst of something very difficult of, you know, why does God allow these things in my life? Well, this morning we're going to see here in John chapter 6 that the disciples are going to encounter a literal storm. And as we look at the storm that they're in and and how they respond, there are three main things I want us to focus on this uh, morning. First, we're going to look at why does God allow storms in our life? We're going to answer that question. We're going to see five reasons why God does that, why God allows that in our life. And the second thing we're going to look at is how the disciples respond in the storm. And their response in the storm is actually going to be a great example to us of how we should respond when storms are are in our lives. And the third thing we're going to look at is how the disciples respond after Jesus takes them through the storm. And that's another opportunity for response, not only as we're in it and in the midst of it and it's difficult and hard, but once God takes us through it, how do we respond, especially to him, the one who has brought us through the storm? And once again, we're going to see a great example from the disciples of how they respond after Jesus takes them through the storm that they face. And it's my desire that we would leave here today as we look at all these things that, you know, just understanding better why God allows storms into our lives, understanding better how we should respond in the midst of them, and also how we should respond once the Lord takes us through them. And we're going to finish our time together this morning remembering what Jesus did to save us from the greatest storm that any of us face, the storm that came because of our sin and the ultimate judgment that it brings on our life which is God's judgment, which leads us to hell, and what Jesus has done by sacrificing himself on the cross for our sin. Now, before we look at this storm that disciples faced, I need to remind you of what we've just seen in John chapter 6, because it kind of sets the stage for us for what's about to transpire. And Jesus has just done this amazing miracle of feeding thousands of people by multiplying five loaves 
and two fish. And we looked at how the disciples responded to that and, and all the ins and outs of that. But we ended in verse 15, which says this. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So after Jesus does this amazing miracle for these thousands and thousands of people, they look at him, they recognize that, you know, whoa, who is this guy? He's a a great person to have around. And all of a sudden we're told that they want to, by force, make him their king. And this is the situation that Jesus is faced with, that the disciples are faced with. And last week we looked at why that was such a problem for the multitude to try to force Jesus to be something that he didn't come to be. To try to force Jesus to be what they wanted him to be instead of to worship and serve him for who he was. But I want you to think about how the disciples would have responded to this situation. The disciples are there. They understand the crowd is there. The crowd wants to make Jesus king. But how would they have responded? What would have been their heart to this situation? I think leading up to this gives us some insights of how the disciples would have been feeling, what they've been thinking, because all the way, all the way to this point in time, the disciples have one big desire. They want Jesus to be king. They want him to rule and reign. They're waiting for him to take power. They're wanting him to do that. That's what they're expecting, him to establish his earthly kingdom. And one of the reasons why that would be so important to them is because they're his right-hand men. Man, if Jesus is king, that makes these guys really important. If Jesus is king, they have this role of greatness that they want. Because we've seen with the disciples, they argue about something regularly with one another. Who is the greatest? You know, that's something that they desire. That's something that they wanted. And they thought, man, under Jesus, when he's king, we're going to be so great. His right hand man. I mean, look at the role of position of greatness that we will have. And so this situation, I'm sure they're thinking, finally, we've been waiting for Jesus to to now be king. And oh, it looks like it's going to happen. The multitude's ready. Oh, this is going to be great. Look at the role that we're going to have. And so imagine what they're feeling, what they're thinking. But this is a problem. This is actually a very dangerous situation for the disciples because Jesus didn't come to be the conquering king in his first coming. He came to suffer and die. He came to conquer sin. He didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to to conquer what was ultimately the biggest issue for all mankind, not just the issue for Israel presently with the Roman Empire. And so, you know, they're being fed something that's not going to happen. They're they're being encouraged with something that Jesus didn't ultimately come to do in his first coming. Now, we know the second coming, he is going to rule and reign and he is going to conquer his enemies. But at this point in time... The disciples are wanting something that Jesus isn't going to do. And this multitude is kind of feeding this desire for something that's not going to happen. And it's dangerous for them. And especially this elevation of, oh, we're going to be so great, which Jesus keeps trying to knock down. You want to be great? Serve. You want to be great? Be the least. He keeps trying to help them understand your view of greatness is skewed and messed up. Now, Mark's gospel tells us something else that Jesus does because John says right after this, Jesus departs from them. That's how we ended last week. Jesus is leaving. You're going to try to force me to be king? Well, then I'm gone. But before he departs from the multitude who wants to force him to be king, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus does one other thing that's very important to note. Mark 6.45, Immediately Jesus made his disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side. 
So before Jesus departs this multitude who wants to make him king, he says, you know what? All you guys, you, you 12 disciples, you get into this boat, and I want you to go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. Before I leave here on my own, I want to make sure you're in this boat and you're away from this situation. You see, Jesus ultimately does this to get his disciples away from the multitude. They're trying to force Jesus to be king. Jesus recognizes this is not a good situation for my disciples. I do not want them influenced by the multitude and what they're trying to force me to do. And so I want them out of this situation. I want them in this boat going across the sea. And the way that Jesus does that is makes them get into a boat. So the disciples are in this boat heading across the Sea of Galilee. And now this is where they're going to encounter a storm. This is where things change for them. Things get difficult. They're just sitting there watching Jesus do this amazing miracle. They're thinking, oh, he's finally going to be king. Great. And they get in this boat, and their circumstances are about to change drastically. Verse 16 of John chapter 6 is this. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because of a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So the disciples are obedient. Jesus says, get in the boat, go across the sea. And that's exactly what they do. They don't fight him and say, oh, we need to stay here. I mean, the multitude wants to make you king. Why are we leaving? They just obey. They get in the boat and they go. And as they're in this boat going across the Sea of Galilee, they get caught in a storm. Now, the distance from where they were leaving, which was Bethsaida, to where they were heading, which was Capernaum, is only a mile. You know, so it's only, you know, they only need to row a mile across this Sea of Galilee, but we're told they were rowing for about three or four miles. You think, well, if it's only a mile distance, how come you guys are rowing three or four miles? Well, the problem is they faced a storm. This wind's blowing against them, so they're rowing and they're rowing, and they're not getting anywhere. They're not going anywhere. You know, the, the frustration must have been great because, you know, here are guys that many of them are fishermen. They've been on the sea many times. They're trying to get across to the other side. They've already gone four times the length that they need to go, and they're not going anywhere. They're just rowing and rowing, and, and they're just going, and the storm is causing them not to get anywhere. Now, something I want you to remember is Jesus is the one who told the disciples to get in the boat. Jesus is the one who sent them into this sea. And we know that Jesus is all-knowing. Jesus knew a storm was coming. And so I want you to recognize that Jesus chooses to send his disciples into a storm. He's the one who sends them into it. He's the one who says, go into this knowing full well that they're going to face a storm when they do it. You know, when we think of Jesus, we often only think of him as the Savior in the storm. And he definitely is. He does save us in storms, and he's the great Savior of the world. And, and that's a wonderful aspect of Jesus to think about. But you know what? Something that we often don't think about is that sometimes Jesus is the sender of the storm. Not just the Savior in it, but the sender of it into our life. And that brings up a question that we often ask. Why does God allow storms in my life? And maybe even a more specific one for the disciples, why would God send a storm into my life? It's one thing for him to allow it, but a whole other one to actually send it. Well, there are five main reasons that I want to look at. They're not 
an exhaustive list, but I think hopefully reasons that will encourage you, help you to think maybe beyond just the situation that you're facing of why God sends or why God allows storms into your life. The first reason is to direct us. You know, I think a great example of this is Saul when he was on the road to Damascus. Saul is going to Damascus with a purpose. I want to capture Christians. I want to imprison Christians. I want to kill Christians with the ultimate goal of I want to destroy Christianity. And there on the road to Damascus, he faced this storm. He sees Jesus, this blinding light literally blinds him, knocks him off his horse. And this storm that he faces and encounters is a turning point for him that totally directs his life. He was on a a direction that was leading to the destruction of Christians. And all of a sudden, he had this storm and the Lord gives him new purpose and direction. He goes from Saul the murderer to Paul the missionary. And we see this massive change of direction in his life because of the storm that he faced. You see, God will often send or allow a storm into your life because he wants to direct you with it. He uses that sometimes to, to guide and direct us. Not always, but sometimes that happens. The second reason God sends and allows storms in our life is to correct us. A great example of this is with the prophet Jonah. God gives Jonah a command, I want you to go, I want you to preach to the wicked Ninevites. (laughs) No way, I'm not going to them. You know how horrible they are? I'm not doing it. I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to go to them. Actually, I'm going to go the opposite way. I'm going to get on a boat and I'm going to sail the opposite direction of Nineveh. That's Jonah's response. And God says, okay, well, I'm going to send a storm of correction. He literally is in a storm, in a boat. The boat's going to go down. They recognize what's going on. He says, you know what? You need to toss me overboard. I'm the problem. I'm the reason this storm is here. And not only does God send a storm, he sends a giant fish. And all of that brings correction to Jonah and gets him back to where God wants him to be. You know, the Bible tells us that God disciplines those he loves. Like a loving father, he disciplines us because he loves us. He wants to help us to change. He wants to help us to get back to doing what is right. And so he'll often send or allow a storm in your life to correct you. You know, the third reason that God sends or allows storms in our lives is to protect us. And we see an example of that right here with the disciples. This storm was really a storm of protection. It was taking them away from that dangerous situation of the multitude. Getting their eyes focused on Jesus the King and what it would do for them. And now their eyes are on the storm and we're going to see their eyes are going to get to Jesus Himself. And they're just going to focus on who He is and what you know, He's there doing for them. And so you know, they've kind of lost sight of the thing that's not supposed to be the focus and just gained the focus of Jesus Himself. And so this storm is actually a protective measure for them. It's getting them out of this dangerous situation. So God will often send or allow storms in your life to protect you. The fourth reason God sends or allows storms into our lives is to enlighten us. You know, when everything's going great, and you know, we have those periods of time in our life, there's no storm, there's no difficulty, there's no hardship, you're thinking, man, job's great, family's great, life's great, things are going so well, you know, in those times, we can sometimes deceive ourselves as to how we're actually doing. 
because there's nothing you know, coming against us. There's no real great difficulty. And so we kind of think, man, I'm doing really well spiritually. I'm doing really well in my life. And there are sins that are inside of us that we oftentimes just don't see. We oftentimes don't recognize in those times that are, are nice and easy. But you know what? When a storm hits, all of a sudden, God uses that to enlighten us to what's really going on inside. To help us see what we're really dealing with, what needs to change in our life. It's kind of like a sponge. You know, you don't know what's inside of a sponge until it's squeezed. You could pick it up and you could squeeze it and it could just be water from the dishes the night before. Or, as I did and wish I didn't, but you know, when our kids were young and uh, I believe it was Scarlet threw up and I cleaned up the baby vomit with you know, a sponge and I just left it and I didn't rinse it out and the next day I pick it up to do something else and squeeze it and you get a handful of vomit and it's disgusting. But you don't know what's inside of it until it's squeezed. And the whole point of that is we're the same way. You know, there's things inside of us that when the storm hits and we get squeezed, we all of a sudden see things that perhaps we thought, oh, everything's great. Well, no, actually, you got some vomit in you. You got some disgusting things that the Lord wants to work on, and that storm reveals that to us, helps us see those things. And so that's one reason that God often sends them, often allows them. Say, I want you to see something in your life that needs to change, and this is going to help you recognize it. It's going to enlighten you about your sin. The fifth reason that God sends or allows storms into our life is to grow us. You know, this is one of the things I think is the most important thing when we think of storms. It has a great ability to help you grow spiritually. This is something that when we look at storms, we typically only see the negative side, the thing that causes problems, the thing that hurts, the thing that we don't want. And we typically don't want to look at, well, what are, what's the positive? What can a storm do that could benefit my life? And this is one of the big ones. It actually can help me spiritually grow. That's what James tells us. That's what Paul tells us in Romans. James 1, 2-4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Romans 5, 3, and 4 says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. So both James and Paul tell us, you know what, take joy, glory in tribulations, in trials, in storms. I mean, that kind of goes beyond the way that we think. Well, we don't take joy in that. We don't glory in that. We, we hate that. We want to get rid of that. We want nothing to do with that. But they say, no, no, no. You're not glorying in the pain. You're not glorying in the storm of what's coming against you. You're glorying and taking joy in what they produce. They produce great spiritual things. They produce growth in your life. Patience, perseverance, character, hope. You know, so often we say, Lord, I want to be a man or a woman of character. And he says, great, I want that of you as well. I'm going to send a storm into your life. No, 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 I don't want a storm. I just want to be a person of character. Oh, I know. And if you want to be a person of character, this is the process. And I'm convinced that there are certain depths of spiritual character, spiritual growth that only come through going through storms. You know, everything's great and easy, no problems, no issues. There's going to be a depth of spiritual maturity that you just can't get to. It comes through having to experience and go through hardship and difficulty and watch the Lord work on your behalf and get you through those things and teach you important lessons through the process. You know, I think something that's important to understand about God, that's a struggle for us. 
God is more concerned about your spiritual growth than he is about your present physical comfort. And I want you to ponder that. He's more concerned about how you are doing spiritually than how you're doing physically. I'm not saying that he's not concerned about your physical life, that he's not concerned about how you're dealing with things, but you know what? He's more concerned about where you're at spiritually. He's more concerned about your spiritual growth than your present physical comfort. And the reason that's important to note is that God will allow you to be physically uncomfortable in a storm in order to spiritually grow you. But we're the opposite. Lord, I'm so often just says, I'd rather be physically comfortable and not spiritually grow. I'd rather life be easy. I'd rather things be, you know, just sweet. And, you know, I'll just take the, the lack of spiritual growth and, and the easy physical comfort. And God says, no, no, no. I love you too much. I know what's best for you. I want you to spiritually grow. And so I'm going to allow this or I'm even going to send this into your life. Yeah, it's going to make you physically uncomfortable, but it's going to help you spiritually grow in the process. So God will often send or allow a storm into your life to help you grow. So the next time you are facing a storm and, and you're posing this question, that's an honest question, it's a question that we ask, you know, why God do you allow this into my life? Hopefully you'll remember some of these reasons. Hopefully you can think, you know, maybe it's because he's using it to direct you like he did Saul. Or maybe he's correcting you like he did Jonah. Or maybe he's using it to protect you like he did with the disciples. Or perhaps he's using it to enlighten you to some kind of sin that's in your life. Or perhaps he's using it to grow you spiritually. You know, we don't like going through storms. But something we need to understand is they can be very beneficial. God can use them for your benefit. He can use them to bless you. He can use them to grow you. And so don't just look at them as this negative thing that nothing good can come from. Yeah, there's issues, there's difficulties, there's hardships that are attached with it. But you know what? There's also blessings. There's also things that God can use in that to help us mature and grow and be what God wants us to be. So don't lose sight of that the next time you're in a storm. So the disciples are in this storm that Jesus sent them into. And notice what happens here in verses 19 through 21. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. You know, many of these disciples are fishermen by trade. And I'm sure when they first get in the boat and Jesus says, I need you guys to sail across the sea, this mile-long journey, we got this no problem. You know, we've done this hundreds, thousands of times. This is, this is easy in the minds of especially Peter and John and James. I mean, this is what we did for a living. But all of a sudden, this task that they thought they could handle, they start rowing. A mile journey, they're rowing three four miles, the storm's there, the wind's blowing against them, they're not making any progress, and they're starting to recognize in and of our own strength, in and of our own power, we can't get through this. We can't get to the other side. You know, at first we probably were real confident in our ability to get through to the other side of the sea, but now the storm is here, and we realize, I can't get through this storm on my own. Even with all my experience on the sea, even with all my strength, even with all my know-how, even with all my power, we're rowing and we're rowing and we're not getting anywhere. In our own strength, we can't get through this. But you know what? Something important to note is they weren't on their own. 
Mark's Gospel tells us that Jesus, as He departed from the multitude, He went up on the mountain. And as He's up on the mountain, He's praying, but we're also told that He's able to look out over the sea, and He sees what the disciples are faced with, He sees what they're dealing with, and He's praying. He sees what's happening. He recognizes that they're rowing and rowing, and and they're not getting anywhere. He knows that they're in this storm. He's the one who sent them there. But He's not just sitting back saying, well, hope they make it. He's up there, he's watching, he's praying. And you know what? When things get really bad, he goes out to them. When you're in a storm, something so important to remember is you're not alone. Jesus is always there with you. The Bible tells us he never leaves us or forsakes us. But the Bible also tells us that he lives to make intercession for us. So not only is he there with you, but he's praying for you. You're not alone in that. You're not having to fight for that, get through that, deal with whatever it is that's coming your way on your own. You have Jesus who's there. You have the Spirit of God indwelling you to strengthen you. You have the Jesus who is interceding on your behalf. But you know what? You've got to recognize you can't do it on your own. That's kind of the first star- starting point. Because if I don't think I can, you know, if if I convince myself I can get through this on my own, I can handle this on my own, well, guess what? I'm not going to ask for Jesus' help. I'm not even going to look to Jesus' help. I got this. I can handle this. I can get through this. I'm strong enough in myself. I have enough wisdom on my own. You know, I can handle this situation. I can handle this problem in my marriage. I can handle this problem in parenting. I can handle, you know, the, the loss of a loved one. I can handle, you know, whatever it is that's coming our way that we think, I got this. And I'm sure the disciples started with that, and then the storm hits, and then it's like, you know what? I don't got this. I've been trying in my strength, and I just, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not able to handle this. I'm not able to get through it. And we got to get to that place where we realize, I can't get through the storm on my own, in my own power, in my own strength, in my own ability. I'm incapable of doing this in myself. And that's a great place to be. That's the place where Jesus wants you to be. Why? Because then you look beyond yourself to him and say, you know what? I need your help, Jesus. I need you to come and get me through this storm. And this is where the disciples are at, that they've got to the place where they've rode for four miles. They're not going anywhere. And now they realize we need help. And it's at this time that Jesus comes to them. And I love the timing of Jesus, of of they're in this place. They finally realize, you know, we need some help here. And Jesus, who's been on this hill, who's been praying for them, now he miraculously walks on the water out to where they are, and they see him. And at first, they don't have a clue who it is. They just see kind of this figure coming towards them, and they're afraid. Well, you would be as well. I mean, you don't normally see people walking on the water. So, you know, they're out there. This is kind of this new phenomenon. They see in the midst of the storm, maybe this shadowy figure walking towards them. They're kind of freaked out. What is this? And right away, as Jesus sees the fear, he says, it is I. Don't be afraid. Hey, it's me, guys. I'm coming to help. I'm here in the midst of the storm with you. And notice right when they recognize that Jesus is there with them, I want you to note what they do because this is the key. If they were just to say, hey, we got this. Jesus, we don't need your help. I know it's been hard, but we're going we're gonna to keep fighting through the rest of the night. We're going to get ourselves to the other side. You might just keep walking. No, Jesus, oh, thank goodness you're here. Notice what they do. They willingly received him into the boat. They knew they needed help. And they ask, they receive willingly. 
It wasn't forced. And this is something that I love about Jesus. He's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself upon you. If you don't want his help, he's not going to force you to take it. If you want to do it on your own, if you want to keep fighting in your own strength and your own power, he'll let you. He's not going to say, no, you're going to, you're going to take my help whether you want to or not. That's not the way he is. It's available here. I'm here for you. I'll help you if you want me to. But you've got to willingly receive it. Just like the disciples willingly received Jesus into the boat. But notice what happens. This is a great thing. They finally get to that place. They willingly receive Jesus into the boat. And notice what takes place right when they do that. Immediately, the boat was at the land where they're going. So right when they receive Jesus, right when they accept his help, he does a miracle for them. They've been rowing. Who knows how far they made it? Maybe they just made it a, a little bit. They're, perhaps they made it halfway across the sea. You know, we don't know exactly where they are in the, in the sea right now. But right when they receive Jesus' help, immediately they're at the other side. He does a miracle. He just takes them right through the storm, right to where they were going, the place that they couldn't get to on their own. Once they receive him, he immediately takes them there. You know, this is such a great example to us of how we need to respond when we're in a storm. We can't get through the storm on our own. We can't get through the storm on our own strength and power. We need Jesus to help. But he's not going to force that on us. We've got to choose it. You're going to say, Jesus, I willingly accept your help. I recognize I need your help. I ask you to help me in this situation. I can't do it. I can't fix my marriage on my own. Maybe I'm struggling as a parent. I need your help. You know, I'm grieving the loss of this person that I love. I don't know what I'm going to do now that I've lost my job. You know, whatever the situation is that you would just come to him, I need your help to deal with this. When you do that, He'll get you through the storm. Now, don't misunderstand something here. The disciples were blessed by immediately going through it. But that's not always the case. If it doesn't happen immediately, don't think, oh man, Jesus, you let me down. I prayed and it, you know, I, wasn't, I wanted an instantaneous get me through. No longer do I have to go through this. He'll get you through it. But sometimes he just walks slowly with you through the process. And maybe you're still in that storm for a while, but you're not alone. I'm there with you. I'll help you get through the other side. I'll teach you on the way. And sometimes we're blessed with that immediate, all right, you know what, I'm just going to, we're going to go right through it quickly. Other times it's slow. But at the end of the day, he will answer that request. And he'll get you through it. So when you're in a storm, respond by recognizing that you can't get through it on your own and ask Jesus to help you get through it. And he will. So we've looked at five reasons for why Jesus sends or allows storms into our lives. We looked at how the disciples respond in the storm and how that's such a great example to us. And now we're going to see how the disciples respond now that Jesus has taken them through the storm. So, so after the storm's done, after they've been brought through it, let's see how they respond, which is another great example to us. And John's Gospel actually doesn't even record this for us. Matthew's Gospel records the response of the disciples after Jesus takes them through the storm. Notice what we're told in Matthew 14, 33. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped Him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Notice this. After Jesus gets the disciples through the storm, after He takes care of this need that is so great in their life that they're freaking out, they can't get it, they're frustrated, they don't know what's going to happen, He takes them through the storm and their response to Jesus is to worship Him and to also say, truly, you are the Son of God. 
Notice this. Because Jesus rescues them in the storm, not only do they come to a place of worship, but they come to a place of real recognition of who Jesus is. And this has kind of been something that's been growing in them and continues to grow. And they're just realizing, man, you are the Son of God because you met my personal need. And this is interesting because they've seen Jesus do a lot. I mean, they've just seen him you know, feed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. I mean, they're not you know, immune to his miracles. But you know what? This is a very personal miracle. It's one thing to watch Jesus feed others. It's another thing to see him rescue you personally in a storm. And why I think that's interesting is of all the things that we see that Jesus did in front of the disciples, this is the first time in the disciples' life that we have recorded in the Gospels where we're told that they worship Jesus. He's, they've, they've seen a lot. He's done a lot. He's done a lot of things worthy of their worship, but this is the first time that we're told here in the Gospels that they're now at a place where they worship him. Max Lucado wrote this, When you recognize God as the Creator, you will admire Him. When you discover His strength, you will rely upon Him. But when He saves you, then you will worship Him. When Jesus takes you through a storm, how do you respond? When He personally takes care of you, walks you through that difficulty, helps you in that struggle, you know, helps you with your marriage, helps you with your parenting, helps you with loss, helps you with you know, those difficult people in your life, helps protect you from the attacks of the enemy. When he takes you through that stuff, what's your response? You know, there's many things that we should respond with, but one that we see here, one that should be something we do so quickly, is we should worship him. Our response to Jesus saving us, getting us through the storms that we face, should be a response of worship. You know, Jesus rescued us from the worst possible storm there is. A storm of sin and separation from God. The Bible makes very clear that we're all sinners. And the punishment of that sin is God's judgment, which is an eternity in hell. And Jesus rescued us from that storm. The worst storm there is. And you can think of, man, oh, this person's so hard, or my marriage is difficult, or, man, these kids that I have, or, you know, just I'm pulling my hair out, or, oh, I'm losing money here. Whatever the, the thing is, nothing comes to compare with the eternal judgment of God. That storm is the one that's the worst of all, and that's the one that Jesus, He came, He sacrificed Himself on the cross, He gave His life, so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. He took the consequence that we deserve so that we could escape it. So we could escape the judgment of God. He made it possible for us to go through that storm and get to the other side and be with Him in heaven. And we should respond by worshiping Him. You know, I think we have a problem of forgetting. A problem of, what are you going to do next? You know, when it comes to Jesus, it's like, you know, that's great that you did this in the past, Jesus. You know, it's nice that you died on the cross for my sins. It's nice that you got me through that storm there. It's nice that you helped me here. But what are you going to do today? What are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do now? And sometimes we, we base whether or not we're going to worship him with what he's doing in the present. You know, if you're not doing enough for me, if you're not taking care of this need or that need, then in my mind, you're not worthy of my worship, of my time, of whatever, 
which is just a, a very screwed up thinking process. That if Jesus never did anything else, if all he did was sacrifice himself on the cross for our sins, if all he did was take the punishment that we deserve, that we would suffer for eternity from, and allow us to be in heaven, that's enough to worship him forever. That's enough for the rest of our lives to say, you know, you don't have to do one more thing for me. You don't have to give me anything. You don't have to bless me in any other way. Because you did that, I'm going to worship you. You know, and on Sunday, we sometimes come and we're, you know, it's been a difficult week. And it's just like, I don't feel like worshiping Jesus. Well, that might be true. But you still should do it. He's worthy. That should be the reason. It shouldn't be, well, you know, I had a great week. Jesus, you really helped me. It's been so great. I got a promotion or whatever. I'm going to really come and worship on Sunday. You know what? Even if you have the worst week of all, it shouldn't change anything. Why? Because it doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change what he has done. He is still worthy no matter if your life's going great or if your life's not. And we should respond in worship. You know, I want us to close as we do the first Sunday of every month just remembering Jesus' sacrifice through communion. A time just to partake of the communion elements, the the bread which represents the the body of Jesus that was sacrificed on the cross, the the juice that represents His blood that was shed for us. And we're going to do this, as Jesus says, in remembrance of me. Why? Because He knows that we forget. He knows that we get into this place of, what have you done for me lately mindset? I want you to look back at what I've done, the greatest thing of all. If you're struggling with, do you love me? Look to the cross because that's the greatest demonstration that I can give. If you're struggling with, you know, will you be there for me? Look to the cross, because that's the greatest demonstration of what I can show you. And so he says, remember this regularly. Look back to what I've done, because it's so important for us to not forget it. And so we're going to do that together. But you know what? We're going to have the worship team come on up. And typically we do kind of one song, and we pass out the elements. And, you know, but today we're going to do you know, just several songs. And I just want to encourage you through this time just to worship to think of the words, to think of the Lord, to think of what He's done, and let's just be a time where we worship Him for who He is, especially for what He's done on the cross for us, and just have that response to Him. And I encourage you, just hold on to the communion elements. Uh, I'll come up after that time of a few songs of worship, and uh, we'll take those together. But uh, I just want to encourage you just to really you know, come before the Lord. If there's sin in your life that you haven't dealt with, I just encourage you just to repent of that and just come and worship Him for He is worthy. Uh, And we're just going to do that together. And so let's just have a moment where we just worship the Lord and remember His sacrifice for us.